preferred, I prefer to be just a friend. That is really how God defines us. A son or a friend. Amen. You know, I have, uh, I have someone I know in London who's, uh, she's a consultant and trainer. She originally comes from the Caribbean and her family have lived in England for many years. And she, she speaks on racial issues and in the workplace, especially in the British Army and other uh, government bodies. And when she runs a seminar, she asks people who they are. And almost inevitably, everybody defines answers by telling her what they do. You know, you are not framed by what you do. That isn't who you are. We are much more than what we do. And so even though I get welcomed with this wonderful list of things that I'm supposed to have done, it, that isn't really the most important thing. I stand before you as a son of a father who loves me. And I have to pick holes with the doctrine of one of your songs. We do know why. Because he loves us. We, we know why. We celebrate his goodness. Because he loves us. And it's what he's done for us that defines who you and I are. Amen? And that won't change. So it doesn't matter whether you succeed or fail, whether things you put your hand to change nations or fall apart. He still loves you, and that's who you are. Amen? Now, I share that because, you know, all the things we do, no one ever talks about what their failures are. But it's usually the mistakes you make that you learn most from. Not all your achievements and all the degrees you get and all the things you accomplish. It's the struggles. It's the difficulties that you overcome. And it's the failures that you don't allow to define you. Amen. And I, I, I want to talk a little bit about that today because in my own life, a number of those things that I did, I did when I was still finding out what I wasn't. And it took me a long time to come to a place of finding who I really was. Um, a, a time, a journey that wasn't always straightforward because we pick up things that others place in our hands and we, we want to be responsible and we want to be loyal and we want to be faithful. So we. We often engage in, in, in connections and in environments or in a commitment to particular institutions or organizations or doing certain things which we, we're sure God's in, but sometimes we hold on too long and then we make mistakes and relationships sour. And it's in those journeys that we discover the most about who we are. Now in the Bible, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a couple of passages of scripture. Um, the Bible, one of the reasons why I love the Bible is it's full of different people. It's full of people who succeed and fail. It's full of people who have the same kind of title like prophet, but some who prophesy for a lifetime, and others, from what we can gather, only prophesy for a few months. Haggai only prophesied for six months. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went to. But he had a message, he brought it. The message was necessary, you read it, you read it in his books, but uh, in, in the book that he wrote. But he only, he only had the word of the Lord in his heart for six months. Then he went back to being what he was doing and I'm sure he was very faithful. 
And he wasn't measured by the fact that he was a sh what's called a, a minor prophet because he was faithful to what God had given him to do. Whereas his colleague and friend, I'm sure, Zechariah, well, from what we tell, can tell, he, he prophesied for years and was eventually martyred from what we understand and killed in the temple by people who didn't like what he had to say. And so we can very easily compare ourselves unfavorably with others. Now, the two biblical characters I particularly want to look at today is John the Baptist, who had the most amazing beginning to his life, and Jacob. Because one had a clarity about what he was, the other struggled to find it. And in my experience, most people struggle to find it. They don't know what they're there for. And so I'm going to read a couple of passages. I'm going to start by reading in John in Luke chapter 1. And this is the story of, this is in the middle of a prophecy that Zechariah brought after his son was born. I'm going to read from verse 75. In holiness and righteousness, no, we'll start at 74. To grant to us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. So he's speaking to his newborn son. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So he was called a prophet of the Most High, or one who goes before the Lord to prepare the way. And Zacharias actually got that from the angel which we find at the beginning of Luke, which I'm not going to read. But when the angel tells John uh, Zacharias that he's going to have a son, he, he quite clearly informs Zacharias of not only the child's name, but what he's going to be. And he calls him one who will go before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Now, I want to read, John chapter 1, because this, this comes up a little bit later in, in, uh, in John's life. He's now begun his ministry. So turn over to John 1, and then what I'm going to do is I'm just going to live you into these, these passages a bit, because it, sometimes we, we read black and white words, and we don't read with an imagination. Now, when, when you read the Bible, it's really, it is really to be encouraged that you imagine yourself in the place of the people that it's writing about. So when we read about Zacharias having this son, imagine what it was like to have not been able to have kids in their culture, right? So his wife was barren. She couldn't have children. We don't know how long that had gone on for. Years. And he had been faithful, and they were upright people. The Bible tells us that. They kept the law, and he was a priest. But anyway, John chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 19. And this is the witness of John. Now, the first part of John chapter 1 is the witness of Jesus, because John was a witness to the light that came into the world. But he was not the light. He was a witness to the light. But what, what did John have to say about himself as opposed to Jesus? He called Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So he witnessed to who Jesus was. But about himself, he, he's asked some questions. This is the witness of John when the Jews sent him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and he did not deny he confessed, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, are you Christ? Are you Messiah? Now, beloved, you, you, you may not have done any of biblical history, but you know, I know that Carol is. She's, she's about to embark on a really great journey of some theological training, and this is wonderful. She's reading a fantastic book soon. 
<coughs> which will keep her busy for a little while, written by an English theologian. But in it, in it he, he helps us understand the context in which Jesus came. And so when the Jews came and they sent this delegation to John and asked him who he was, they, they had something in mind. Because for 400 years, 450 years, they'd been looking for a deliverer. Because in 587 BC, the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar walked into Jerusalem and tore down the temple, destroyed the city, and took the whole nation captive. And from that moment on, the nation of Israel, even though some had returned, viewed themselves as exiles because they were always under, from that moment, foreign military power of one form or another. So it had started the Babylonians, then it became the Medo-Persian Empire, and then for a little while they got freed under the Maccabeans about 250 years before Jesus came. But then, then the, the, the Greeks and Antiochus Epiphanes and the... Uh, he came in and, and he destroyed the temple some more and sacrificed pigs on the altar and desecrated the temple. And then the Roman Empire came and they, they all kept the nation of Israel in exile, in slavery. Not out of their land, this time in bondage within their own country, but they didn't see themselves free yet and they were looking for a savior. So when the Jews sent this delegation, the Pharisees, they were, they were wanting to find out who this man was who was turning the country upside down because people were going out from the cities, from Jerusalem, and making a very torturous journey all the way to find this man to be baptized. He, he was having an influence on a nation, and they thought, maybe this, is, maybe this is Messiah. So they ask him, and he says, no, I'm not the Christ. And then they say, are you Elijah? And he says, I'm not. And then they ask him, are you the prophet? And he says, no. And then they say, what are you then? Because we want to be able to give an answer to those who sent us. And what does he say? He quotes his dad, who quoted the angel. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. He knew exactly who he was. Can you define your life in a sentence? God doesn't want generalists in his church. People who try and be a little bit of everything. He wants us to know very clearly. Some have wide influence. Some have narrow. Some are just called to be a door handle. But don't try and open windows if you're a door handle. He wants us to know clearly who we are. Because we're all being built into a temple. And we all have a part to play. Amen. So, John, let's just, let's just look at this. John's birth was quite extraordinary. There were only a few other occasions in the Bible where God intervened in that kind of way. He did for the birth of Samson, whose mother couldn't have children either. And Isaac you know, appeared to Abraham to promise a son. But by and large, that kind of intervention hadn't happened. And here is this faithful couple, and he's a priest. And, and he's drawn by Lot to go and offer incense on the altar of incense for the, for the sacrifice, for the, the, the weekly sacrifice. And so he goes up to Jerusalem because it's his, his turn to serve. And his, he and his wife, they can't have kids. And in those days, as in many cultures to this day, not ha being able to have a child was a stigma. It was considered a curse. In fact, many times they would ask, what have you done to bring this upon you? So when, the Je when Jesus approaches a blind man or comes to him, close, a blind man comes to him in John 9, and Jesus is about to pray for him. His disciples say, was it this man's sin or was it his parents that caused him to be born blind? 
because it was a common theological discussion that they had. They wanted to know why this was. So anyone who couldn't have children, there was this, this question mark over their character. Even though they seem to be upright, maybe there's something insidious in their lives that we can't see, that God's judging. So here is this man, and he's faithful, and he's left his wife behind in Ephraim, where they live, up in the hill country, about a day's journey. Again, when you read the Bible, God wrote the maps as well. They're at the back. You know? So when you read the Bible, use the maps, all right? Because that helps you understand context. And, and so Josh, Zechariah has gone up to this, this temple, and he's offering this sacrifice, and he, and he has a visitation from Gabriel, who promises him that he's going to have a son, and he's going to call him John. And that John is going to go, going to be a prophet of the Most High, who's going to go before the people and, and turn up people from darkness to light in the spirit and power of Elijah. Right? And then, then this is a bit overwhelming. Would you be overwhelmed? Yeah, yeah I would be overwhelmed as well. You can be sure. And, and Zacharias, he doubts. And he asks this angel a question. He says, prove yourself. How will I know? Prove it. He asks the doubting Thomas question. Have you ever asked any of those? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's reasonably safe to ask the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but if you find an angel in front of me, in front of you, you know, just, just be careful what you ask, because you may find that you get an answer you're not expecting, right? So he says, this is how you're going to know. You're, gonna be, you're not going to be able to speak for nine months. You're going to be dumb for a season because you doubted. So he goes home and he tries to communicate with his wife what's happened and, you know, he gets good at writing during this time because he has to write everything down on a piece of tablet and tries to communicate and, well, nine, she gets pregnant, you know? She gets pregnant and we don't know how long they've waited. It's the whole of their lifetimes. He started as a priest when he was 30. So he was at least 30. And they used to get married young. So it was at least 16 years. But it could have been 46. We don't know. And she gets pregnant. And she says, Zach, you know, I'm pregnant. Now, let me just tell you, I guarantee he did not need her to have an ultrasound to know the gender of that baby. He knew exactly what, his, what, what child his wife was carrying. Right? And have you ever wondered what he thought about all those nine months and why the angel needed him to be quiet? You know, he asks kind of doubting Thomas questions, doesn't he? And he wants that child to be brought up in a home which was positive, where his role and his ministry was whispered over his life in the womb with the care and the oversight and the compassion and the tenderness of one who would carry him into a place of life and ministry. And so... Zachariah is silenced for nine months. And during that time, I'm certain, he just thinks about the word the angel spoke. And he starts meditating on scriptures, because that's all he can do. He probably knew the entire Old Testament fluently. Certainly would have known the Torah and some of the promises that God brought to Moses about the prophet who was to come. And he begins to consider what this son is going to be. So when his son is born, he brings forth the most outstanding prophetic word of the whole of the New Testament. Nothing can compare with it. And he gives Jesus a title that no one else duplicates. I, nobody else calls Jesus the sunrise from on high. When, does, when do you see the sunrise? 
at dawn. That's when the sun rises, when it's been dark, when, it's been, when people's vision has been closed down, when there's difficulty and struggle and question and doubt. And, and that's what the nation of Israel were experiencing. They were experiencing this, this, this struggle to, to find their freedom and to, to hope in redemption again. And he comes and he speaks straight out of whole chunks of the old covenant about the promises of God for the people, for God's people, not just Israel, for all of us. About what his destiny for us is and is into the future. And he prophesies this over his son. So when his son is approached by this delegation from the Pharisees, He's in the Jordan somewhere, baptizing. Now again, you need your maps, beloved. God wrote those too. If you haven't got maps, look them up. Google it. Because the road from Jerusalem down to the River Jordan was difficult. Jesus talks about it in a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because you had to walk to Jericho first. Because these were good Jews and they didn't walk across Samaria, which was probably the quickest way to get to where John was. So they had to walk down to Jericho and then up the Jordan because Jericho's down by the Dead Sea. It's in the bottom. And they then walk up the Jordan until they found him. So they were gone at least four days. And, and they were negotiating the most, the most dangerous road in Israel, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. What does Jesus say in Luke 11 when he talks about He tells the parable. He says, a man went from Jerusalem to Jericho and what? Fell amongst thieves. Because that road goes in just about 70, 60, 70 kilometers. Goes down 1,000 meters. The height of Table Mountain. And, and, and it's rocky and it's barren. And the road twists and winds. And it provides perfect place for for vagabonds and others to ambush innocent travelers. And so these, these, these Jews sent from the Pharisees, these priests and Levites, they make this dangerous journey because they really want to find out what this man is. They want to know because they want deliverance for their people. And it's been 460 years, a long time. They want Messiah. So they come and they find John and they say, who are you? He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And then they say, what are you? What are you? That we've got an answer. And he says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He knows exactly who he is in a sentence. Because of his history. Now, in my own life, it took me 30 years to find out what I wasn't. The interesting thing about this passage, the John passage where John is talking about who he isn't and who he is, is that Jesus actually said he is the Elijah to come. And he said that twice. He said it in Matthew uh, 16, no, Matthew 11 to his disciples and the multitude and he said it coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration uh, to his to Peter James and John and they say they say to him Jesus you may be the Messiah but isn't Elijah supposed to come first and Jesus says he was John the Baptist if you can receive it but the implications are huge because if John was Elijah and Jesus is Messiah something's happening change is coming the revolution has begun. A, an adjustment, a changed world is now upon you. And it's going to have some massive implications for this nation and for this city, for this people, if they don't receive the one who's been sent as Lord, Savior, Messiah. Which they didn't, and it did. They lost a nation, they lost a city, and they were scattered to the four corners of the world. And so we see then that God accomplished his purpose in that particular case through a person who really very clearly knew who he was 
and what his function was and what his role was. And we also learn that sometimes other people, like Jesus, will see things in you that you don't see in yourself, but you don't necessarily need to know it. All John needed to know to do what God had called him to do was that he was a voice. He didn't need to know he was Elijah. That was not necessary. So beware of what you ask for, because sometimes we're given more information than we need, and that can be destructive. Had John really been able to grasp that he was Elijah, it had huge implications. And I wonder whether it would have been overwhelming for him because of what he would have known from Malachi chapter 4. If you don't know what's there, read it. Do some homework, because I haven't got time to tell you. Not now. Right. Now, the other person whose life I want to look at didn't know who he was, even though he had a very important part to play. His name was Jacob. And I'm not going to read any scriptures on Jacob. I'm just going to tell you his story. Because I, I'm far more like Jacob than I ever was like John. Very much more like Jacob. Jacob, the name means cheat. One who grabs the heel to take advantage of someone when they're tripped up. Now let me just give you some pointers. Never ever buy a second-hand vehicle from Jacob. Because <laughs> if he was capable of fleecing his dad, he could certainly make sure that you were buying a car with a few mistakes in it that he wasn't going to be honest about. Absolutely. So, so Jacob, he's born, and he's, he's the second son. And when he is born, he's called Jacob because he was grabbing his brother's heel. And in those days, they often used to name their children after a physical characteristic. In other words, they named them naturally, what their eyes saw. And that's not how God names you. He doesn't na name you by what he sees. He names you by what he's called, what he's chosen, what he's placed in you, what your destiny is. Amen? That's how he names you. So he names he, Jacob's brother Esau. He, he was born red and hairy, so he was called Esau, which means ruddy or red. And then Jacob comes out. He's grabbing his brother's heel. And his, his mum, dad immediately says, he, he's Jacob. He trips people up. He's going to trip people up. You know, we can see it. He's going to try and trip people up. And in those days, really until relatively recently in history, it wasn't really cool to be the second son. I don't know if you've ever watched Pride and Prejudice. Jane Austen. Jane Austen was an English author of the 19th century, and she, she wrote about wealthy English families and what they did and didn't do. And sometimes she'd write about the second son, often the eldest son. But the second sons, well, they, they had rather a restricted path to take. You know, dad would buy a commission in the army, and they'd go off and fight, or they'd become a, a pastor or church, churchman, you know. That was pretty much the only options. But eldest son, he got everything. He got the house. He got dad's fortune. He got dad's titles, club memberships. You know, it's quite helpful if you got a club membership at the Wanderers, you know, Wimbledon, pass on your club membership, Wimbledon Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club. But, you know, son always has, you know, nice, nice seats for the tennis. You know what I'm saying? And so eldest son got everything. And so Jacob's looking at this and he thinks, I want what my brother's got. Do you want things that other people have that you don't have? Because the world measures us by all kinds of things, which are really unfortunate. That's why we are used to telling people what we do when we are actually asked about who we are. We tell them what we do. I'm a doctor, or I really don't know, or I'm unemployed, or I'm a student, or I'm, we never say I'm a dad. 
don't really know why, but we tell people what we do, what, how we've trained, what job description is, because we measure ourselves by how other people define us. And God wants so much more for us than that. So Jacob, here he is, and he, he, he now is wanting the interest and the attention that his brother is getting. And it's not made any better by the fact that Esau's great at hunting and his dad likes Biltong. And that's, that, that is a bit of a setback. And, and so we see the division in this family. It's, it's really quite black and white. So Esau is loved by Isaac. And Jacob is loved by his mum. And he ends up in the kitchen. He makes the food. Right? So Esau's out there hunting. And Jacob dwells with mum in the tent. So you have this division in this family. But Jacob hasn't given up getting what his brother's got. And the first opportunity he has to take something from his brother that really is the right of the firstborn is when his brother's been hunting and hasn't caught anything and he's a bit hungry. And he comes back to the camp and he smells this stew that his, that, that his brother's been making and he says, give me some of that stew, please. And Jacob says, first sell me your birthright. Because he wants what his brother's got. Because he feels he's got no worth unless he's got something that his brother's been given. Because his brother's the eldest and he's the second oldest and, and, and that is a struggle to Jacob. He, he doesn't accept himself. He's got no identity. He's defined by his name Jacob, Cheat. So his brother Esau... Well, his brother Esau's got one fundamental weakness. He doesn't know how to sacrifice the temporal for the eternal. God will test everyone on that because he's given you things that are eternal value and he wants you to give up the things that are, are less important sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. That's why we fast for a while, to give up something that's important to us in order to be able to lay hold of something that's more important, the presence of God, or the direction of the Father's voice. Amen? So, so Jacob, Jacob seeks to take advantage of his brother. He's grabbing his heel, taking advantage of him, and his brother's feeling weak, but he's certainly not dying, as he said he was doing. He exaggerated, just to make it himself feel a bit better about what he was about to do. Because he thought, I'm going to have some of that stew even if I do have to sell my birthright because it really tastes very good. So he, he indulged the temporal and sacrificed the eternal. Now the question you have to ask is, what was in the birthright? That is a very, really rather important question. And what was in, Jacob's, in, in Esau's birthright was the promise of God to Abraham. Because he was his grandson. And what was in the promise of God to Abraham? I'll tell you now. In a sentence, God's eternal plan of salvation for all mankind. Now, it is not good to sacrifice God's eternal purpose for mankind, for all mankind, for eternity, for a single meal. That is not really kosher, right? That's not, that's not a good idea. But that's what, Jake, that's what Esau did. So I'm sure the next, by the next day Esau had forgotten he had done this. But I can tell you there was one Perth on earth who would never forget. Jacob. He would never forget. And the next thing we see him stealing from his brother with his mother's help and advice is Esau's blessing. So for that, he has to deceive his dad, pretend to be Esau, and get his brother, get his dad, thinking that it's Esau, to give him Esau's blessing because that's what he thinks he needs to get his dad's interest his dad's love, and his dad's acceptance. Isn't that sad? But that's what we all do, beloved, when you don't know who you are. Because there are cert deep things, certain deep things, needs in your life that if they're not being met by God, you're going to try and find a, a way of having them met 
by someone else or something else, aren't you? Because those needs are eternal. They're lifelong. They don't change. And they, they frame who you are. Hmm? That's another message. I'm not going there. But then what happens? The story continues and Esau finds out about what his brother has done. And he's, Esau's, you know, Esau's tough, isn't he? I mean, he's been out there in the bush. He can throw, he can throw a spear through a tree trunk at 100 meters, you know. So, so you know, Esau, Esau says, I'm going to kill you. Because he's now stolen his birthright and his blessing. Now, the point you've got to ask here is what was in Esau's blessing that Isaac gave to Jacob, thinking it was Esau. What was in that blessing is rather important. That blessing contained two principal things, the promise of wealth and the promise of power over your enemies. In other words, of lordship, of authority and power. So Jacob has now stolen these things from his brother. And his brother's mad. So Jacob runs away and he goes to his uncle because he's trying to find a place where he can kind of settle down a little and not have, you know, not have to face too much. <laughs> but he chose the wrong person to go to. Because if Jacob was good at deceiving, his, his uncle was even worse. He was a chip from the same block. And you know the story of that. He deceived Jacob in the woman he was marrying. Married her off to his older daughter, who he didn't love, to before he would allow him to even come close to the younger one. So Jacob worked for 14 years before he really had the love of his life. And in the meantime, he was kind of encumbered with this other wife. And of course, God favored the one that was despised, Leah, and gave her plenty of children. And, and I made life a bit more difficult for Rachel, who eventually died in childbirth, but that was a little later in the story. And so Jacob gets to the place where well he's he's working with his uncle and of course God in that environment shows him exactly what's in Jacob's heart he puts up a mirror says Jacob you want to know what you like look at your uncle what you've sowed you've reaping you deceived your dad your uncle deceives you right so he was able to see that this world this way of living isn't, is a struggle. And I'm not sure if I want to continue to live it forever. And the time comes when he knows he's got to go back to the promised land, to the area which was defined by his grandfather through the mouth of God as being his territory, his inheritance forever. And so he packs up his family and all his livestock and provision and his camels and all the other things and his few servants and he, and he goes back to face his Esau. You'll never enter your promised land if you bury your Esau's. Too many Christians bury the things that they feel ashamed about. Beloved, be open about them. Find people you can trust and talk freely about what's happened, what you've done, what's been done to you. Because only when you do that will you find freedom. It's when we walk in the light, as he is in the light, that we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Because we've all, we've all made mistakes. We all carry skeletons in the closets of our lives, of one form or another. So Jacob 
he sets out and he decides that he's going to have to face his brother. Now he's not looking forward to this. What were the last words his brother said? And believe me, 21 years hasn't wiped out that memory. He knows exactly what his, was his brother's intent and he knows his brother had every right to be angry, doesn't he? So he finds a faithful, faithful messenger from his small gathering of people and he sends him off to Esau and he says, he says these words. He says, I have come from your servant Jacob, Lord Esau. He calls him Adonai, which means God. So, my Lord Esau, I have come from your servant Jacob, and he's coming with his family and his wife and his children, his livestock and his whole inheritance, his wealth. And so, Esau sends word back through the same messenger, great, I'll come and meet you, and I'm bringing 400 men. <laughs> Now, this was not really good news for Jacob because he had two wives, 11 sons, <laughs> and different stages of age, and a few servants, and all his wealth. And he's facing what he considers to be an angry brother with 400 men. Now, that is not really good odds. Make sure you pick a fight with the right person. <laughs> you, don't, you don't take on your brother when he's coming with that kind of an army. Anyway, so he has another plan because he's frightened that Esau is coming as an aggressor. And he thinks, I'll buy him. I'll buy him out. So he makes some decisions. He portions off three lots of his livestock. And he's got camels, donkeys, cattle, sheep, and goats. And he gets a faithful servant with each of these, and he sends them over the river, and he says, when you meet my lord Esau, tell him this is from his servant Jacob. And he uses the same words again, Adonai Esau. So he, he sends each one slightly apart so that Esau will get these three lots of gifts from servant, groveling servant, groveling servant Jacob to placate Esau's anger. So what's Jacob doing? He's being typical Jacob. He's trying to use human means to accomplish God's ends. And that never works, right? We've got to have the means right and the end right. Otherwise, it's the Lord has departed, you know, God will judge it. So, anyway, he does all of this, and uh, he's hoping that this is going to work, and then what he does is he sends his wives and children <laughs> across the river, <laughs> gets them to camp on the other side. So, courageous, courageous Jacob facing his brother, he sends his wives first and the kids. So maybe, maybe if after all these gifts that he's been given, he's still angry, he'll see, he'll see my wife and my children and have some compassion. So he's still trying to manipulate, isn't he? And then, and then he starts to pace because he doesn't know how to face this. He starts to pace. He's, he's fearful. He's worried. He's anxious. He's done everything that he possibly can in his own strength to win the day, but he doesn't know it's going to work. And that is so like, well, it's like me, apart from anybody else, but I'm sure it's like a few of you as well. So I used to be in that, ca in that camp a great deal. So he, he's pacing and it's getting dark. And the stars start to come out and it's getting darker. And as he's pacing, his head's down, he's, he's thinking, his forehead's, you know, wrinkled with all the thought and furrowed and then someone jumps on him who do you think he thought jumped on him you know we always like to think oh he was really spiritual he knew it was an angel from the start no he may have been blessed but he certainly wasn't really spiritual and the way he went about things was typical of a person who didn't know his identity. 
didn't know who he was and therefore didn't know how to trust God to make it happen for him in his time and in his way. So he gets jumped on and he's certain it's his brother. So he fights. And by now he's pretty tough, but he's, so they're fighting. And then at the breaking of the dawn, he realizes he's not fighting his brother, but he's fighting God. That's where all the greatest victories and battles lie. Because your greatest struggle is always going to be with God and who he's made you to be. Always. Because then we have to lay down all the other things that other people who are important to us have said about us, all the things we've tried to become, all the striving, all the efforts, all the da-da-da-da-da. We have to come to terms with who God's made us to be. And so he sees this as an angel. And the angel says, let me go, it's dawn. And there's a good reason for that, because we can't really look on the face of God and live. So the angel doesn't want Jacob to lose his life in this process. So so angel says, <coughs> let me go. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until what? Till you bless me. Why does he still need a blessing? I'll tell you why. Because he's come to realize the blessing he stole from his brother wasn't his in the first place. He wants more. He wants father's blessing. He doesn't want just his natural dad's blessing. He wants his, his God's blessing. Spiritual dad's blessing. Right? And the angel says, this is exactly what he says, what's your name? And Jacob says, my name's Jacob. And the angel says, no longer you Jacob, you're Israel. Because you're striven with man and with God and prevailed. I'm changing your identity. So no longer do you need to live under the, the pain of the name Jacob and try to work out by your own strength and your own effort that which I've made you to be. I'm giving you a new name and a new call and I want you to step into it and embrace it. So he gets his new name and to help Jacob remember that he never needs to go back to his old ways of manipulation and stealing and cheating. He gives him a limp, dislocates his hip. So Jacob carries that mark to remind him that he can't do it by human power ever again. And he can't even wrestle with his brother anymore. He can't wrestle with an angel. He just has to trust in the name, in the identity that God's given to him. And he crosses the river on his own, meets his family, meets his brother, and he bows seven times before his brother. And he calls him Adonai Esau. And Esau tries to give him back all the, all the animals and the livestock that he's given to him. And he says, no, I want to enrich you because your blessing is a blessing of wealth and power. So I call you Adonai Lord because I recognize your headship and authority. And I give you wealth and I want to bless you because I've now found a new blessing. Because the blessing that God gave to Abraham had nothing to do with wealth and power. It had everything to do with family and land. And he knew that the blessing he now had was totally different to the one he'd stolen and he needed to give it back to enable himself to embrace what God made him and called him to be. So beloved, we're all like Jacob. We're on a journey. I've lived on this continent long enough to know they give people some crazy names. I have a friend in Zambia who was named by a priest. He's called Aristarico, Piri. He's actually come back to South Africa briefly and I hope to see him next week. I've met all kinds of other people who had very bizarre names, very strange names. I met a Zimbabwean couple called Desperate and Delicious. 
I'm glad they were married. I, didn't want to, I don't want him to be desperate any longer. So we have, we have a couple of wooden, wooden statues of a man and a woman, which we got somewhere or another, either in Zimbabwe or somewhere. We call them desperate and delicious to remember because we just think that's really good. But I don't mind what man's named you. I don't mind what your parents have named you, well-meaning though they may have been. I'm called Stephen, and my surname is Herzig. Herzig means compassionate. I was chatting in the, uh, after the first service with a chap who's Swiss. He knows what Herzig means, because there's Herzigs in Switzerland, and in Germany, and in Czechoslovakia, and Czech Republic. It means compassionate, full of heart. Herz, heart. And then my first name, Stephen, means crowned one. That's what my parents, that's, those, those are the names I, I received. But I have another name. And just as Jesus renamed Peter, God has a way of giving us all names because he's our father. And fathers named their children in the Bible. And he's placed his name upon you. And we have that promise in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, which is the section of writing which is addressing the seven churches and the particular church that chapter 2.17 that is being addressed is the church in Pergamon, which, is, which was located in a, in a up, uh, up in the mountains in western Turkey now. And, and it was the first place they built a temple to Caesar. And the writer to the, Rev the Holy Spirit refers to this because he talks about Satan's synagogue. The first Christian martyr at the hand of Rome died in that temple. So it was, it was in a, a difficult place to be living out your faith. And these people needed a reminder of the love of God, that their, their lives were under his hand and under his blessing. And he, and he tells them that if they overcome, they will receive some hidden manna. Manna was put in the, in the, ta in the tabernacle, in the, in the box, to remind people of Israel of God's provision in the wilderness. So hidden manna speaks to us of God's sovereign protection, sovereign provision in places that are dry and difficult and spiritually hard. Right? And then he says, and I will give to him a white stone. Now this is another whole message that I know Andrew and Carol have heard me preach on times past. But when Jesus started introducing stones and Peter and Simon, Matthew 16. It was very important. It was very significant. And I've got a couple more minutes, so I'm going to take it. Here's, here's some more geography. You can look this up. You can Google this one now. I mean, you've got huge advantages over me. I had to look all this stuff up in big books. Now you just Google it. Or you had to go there. I actually went to this place. Jesus talked about rocks and renamed Simon, Peter, at a very significant place. It was called Caesarea Philippi. It was a relatively new Roman city. And they built it at a particular place for one very good reason. Because the Romans had a spiritual interest and curiosity about springs of water coming out of the ground. And they would bathe in the waters because they believed it brought life. And they would often build temples there and baths there because they wanted to wash in the waters. So there is a place called Bath in England where there was a Roman temple and Roman bath because there was a hot spring that comes out of the ground and the, what, the Romans just loved this. They saw its spirituality. In fact, they even believed that this was connected to the River Styx that was an underground river that separated Hades from the, 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 rea the real world in which we live. 
So Jesus comes there, and at, at this place, Caesarea Philippi, there is a cliff. And at the bottom of the cliff, there was this cave. And out of the bottom of this cave flowed a river, which was as wide as about half this room. So this wasn't just a little tinsy spring somewhere. This was a river flowing out of a rock. And what reminds you of rivers and rocks? Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Jesus was the rock that traveled with the nation of Israel through the wilderness. And out of the rock came a river. So he was trying to make the point, I'm the rock, out of my life flows a river, and Simon, you are no longer a reed blown by the wind, but you have seen something of who I am, the bedrock Christ, and I say you're a stone. And one of those stones he gives to you, because you've also seen the rock. And he purifies it and makes it holy, because it's white. So it's a sanctified, made holy stone. And on that stone, he writes a name, which no one knows except him who receives it. Because Father gives all his children a name, an identity. So whose name are you going to live out of? Are you going to be a Jacob or a Stephen? Are you going to live out of the identity that your heavenly Father has given to you. That's the choice. It's like this, like this room divided down the middle. We have a choice. And God wants you to grow in your understanding of the fact that you're a son or daughter of the house. That he's died to take on and destroy the forces, principalities and powers that have been given power by our illegitimate idolatry and worship. And he's come to redeem us and to set us free from sin and all its consequences so we can be a part of Father's house again and his family. Amen? Now, that is the journey, beloved, we're all on because we're not all born like John. How many of you had your introduction given to your parents by an angel? Anyone here? Did your mum and dad get, have an angelic visitation before you were conceived? No? No? Well, then you're probably more like Jacob than you are like John. God loves them both. But he wants you to be able to define your life in a sentence or two so that you accomplish the destiny, the identity that he's betrothed into you by his choice and by his birthing. Amen. So, Father, I pray for this people. You know, I know you're every nation, Ramesuk, but God just says this to me. You need to give yourself as a community a name. You're not just a generic. That can be your surname. You're not even a place. Because God takes people from here, there, and everywhere. You might be located here. This may be where you meet. But you come from all kinds of histories and pasts. God wants you to dig a well here. Because he's given you land and he's given you territory. But he wants you to know the name of that well. He knows what kind of life. He wants you to know what kind of life it's going to bring to people. He wants you to understand why he's placed you here, and some of the history, some of the past, some of the things that he's trying to open up, some of the principalities he's seeking to tear down, but some of the life sources that he's seeking to release from the earth. And it's not just every nation, Ramesach. There is a quality, a specific identity that he wants you to find as a people that you may know and you can use because it defines some of that which God has called you to be. And that may be controversial. I don't know. I'm just telling you what I sense. And, uh, you know, I just, I just need to do that even if it, you know, I'll tell Roger tomorrow. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I could. But, you know, I, I think these things are important. 
I really feel very strongly that there's a connection to something here that God is wanting you to unearth and to discover and a uniqueness in where he's placed you and will place you that he's wanting you to journey with and define and call out. And now, so I pray, Lord Jesus, that your hand would rest upon your people here. And I've been speaking about identity, who God's made you to be. Just by looking at many of you here, I know God's been speaking to your hearts. This is one of those subjects that really draws deeply from things within our spirits and our souls. If you want, so I pray. Holy Spirit. Breathe on your church. Call your people by name as the shepherd leads his sheep by name. And bring them into the fullness of that which you've called them to be. Father, release your life from deep within their souls, from underground hidden from man, but prepared and made ready by God. And I bless them in Jesus' name. Lord, we do. We just, we receive your anointing and your grace, Lord God. For every person here, Lord, we just... Lord God, I ask just for a revelation of who they are in you. I just want to speak into every soul. You belong. You're a son. You're a daughter. You have a destiny that's filled with the power and the life of God. I just speak into every soul. Be strong and courageous. Do what you call to do. Be who you call to be. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen. Can we give the Lord a hand?